Hi, and welcome back to Seppa Stories. In our last chapter that we read, we had traveled with Roland and Jake uh, to the speaking ring, I believe we were at, and I'm looking back to refresh myself, the Oracle in the Mountains, and that was chapter three. So as a quick recap, Roland and Jake have finally traversed the desert and the way station. They've, they've moved away and they finally ended up in a wooded area. They've crossed the desert and in this wooded spring type area at the base of the mountains, they find a speaking ring and they make camp and they kind of try to rebuild themselves and rehydrate after the very dry desert. Uh, the oracle within the speaking ring almost kills Jake when he wanders into her clutches and Roland rescues Jake and takes his place thinking that the oracle or the demon that resides within the speaking ring which very much resembles a Stonehenge type setup um, the demons trapped in that place he knows that the creature living within it or the spirit or entity living within it might be able to offer him some type of prophecy or, or future telling and this oracle does tell him some very vague information about B, uh, three being a number in his future and then of course the exchange for this information you know is of course Roland uh, being intimate with now this entity which he also has had to take uh, mescaline to be able to open his mind up to this communication with this creature. So after gaining the information, Roland and Jake leave the oracle and the speaking ring and they begin their time up the mountain, which is actually the second part of the third chapter. And so to two settings are, are combined in this place then we have the climb up the granite mountain and the climb is very different from the traveling across the desert and that the climb seems to be going pretty easy where the desert almost killed them and we start to see a tension develop between Jake and Roland and it's as if the boy is already starting to understand that he might be a pawn to the great to the gunslinger you know in a way that that he doesn't like you know and and he's starting to see that perhaps he could also be at risk his very life be at risk with this gunslinger that he is now you know hoping to trust so this is very disturbing to to Jake uh, they do finally run into the man in black which is very surprising. You know, after all these many long years and miles that the gunslinger has been chasing the man in black, he suddenly comes across and, and finds him around a corner. And, you know, of course, the, the man in black is taunting the gunslinger and taunts Jake as well. And so, you know, now we know Jake is more confirmed that his life is very much at risk and he doesn't want to follow the gunslinger, but he doesn't have a choice. So you see the dynamic between Jake, the boy, and the gunslinger start to become more complicated. And the man in black is still ever goading them on. So that, that was very interesting.
Alright, so let's begin our next chapter called The Slow Mutants. And there is a divider page, so this looks to be actually a pretty sizable chapter, so we'll probably break this into a couple of reading segments. And there's also an illustration. And, and just FYI, I did record this previously yesterday, and I just wasn't happy with the way the recording came out, so this is a re-record, and if you've listened to the other one and you're listening again, I'm, I'm really sorry for maybe throwing you, but I wanted to provide a better quality control for you, so that's what this is all about, is good quality reading as best as I can give it. Alright, so on the cover page to the Slow Mutants, you see the gunslinger with his gauntleted uh, hand raising the hawk, it looks like maybe David, to the wind. And it's like a little wood print, and it's, there's just not a lot there, but it's nice. So chapter four is titled The Slow Mutants, and we know when we last read, and I'll pick up the uh, last two paragraphs from the previous chapter and then begin to continue on. So this is the ending of chapter three. Come with me or stay, the gunslinger repeated, and felt something happen in his mind and uncoupling. There was the moment at which the small figure before him ceased to be Jake and became only the boy, an impersonality to be moved and used. Something screamed in the windy stillness, and he and the boy both heard. The gunslinger began to climb, and after a moment Jake came after. Together they mounted the tumbled rock beside the steely cold falls, and there where the man in black had stood before them and together they entered where he had disappeared. The darkness swallowed them. That was the ending of chapter three, and we are now moving into chapter four. The Slow Mutants. The gunslinger spoke slowly to Jake and the rising and falling inflections of one who speaks in his sleep. There were three of us that night, Cuthbert, Elaine, and me. We weren't supposed to be there because none of us had passed from the time of children. We were still in our clouts, as the saying went. If we'd been caught, cord would have striped us bloody, but we weren't. I don't think any of the ones that went before us were caught either. Boys must put on their father's pants in private, strut them in front of the mirror, and then sneak them back on their hangers. It was like that. The father pretends he doesn't notice the new way the pants are hung up, or the traces of boot-polished mustaches still under their noses. Do you see? The boy said nothing. He said nothing since I passed from the daylight. The gunslinger, on the other hand, had talked hectically, feverishly, to fill the silence. He had not looked back at the light as they passed into the land beneath the mountains, but the boy had. The gunslinger had read the failing day in the soft mirror of Jake's cheek. Now faint rose, now milk glass, now pallid silver, now that the last dusk-glow touch of evening, now nothing. The gunslinger had struck a false light, and they had gone on. Finally, they camped. No echo from the man in black returned to them. Perhaps he had stopped to rest, too. Or perhaps he floated onward and without running lights through the nighted chambers. The sewing night cotillion, the Kamala, some of the older folks called it after the word for rice. It was held once a year in the Worcestered Hall, the gunslinger went on. The proper name was the Hall of Grandfathers, but to us it was only the Worcestered Hall, 
the sound of dripping water came to their ears. According right, as any spring dance surely is, the gunslinger laughed appreciatingly. The incensed walls turned the sound into a loon-like wheeze. In the old days, the books say, it was the welcoming of spring, but that was sometimes called New Earth or Fresh Kamala, but civilization, you know. He trolled off, unable to describe the change inherent in that featureless noun, the death of romance, and the lingering of its sterile, carnal renovant, the world living on in forced respiration of glitter and ceremony, the geometric steps of make-believe courtship during the sewing night till that had replaced the truer, madder scribble-scrabble of love, of which he could only intuit dimly hollow grandeur in place of true passions which might have once built kingdoms and sustained them. He found the truth with Susan Delgado and mages only to lose it again. Once there was a king, he might have told the boy, an eld whose blood, thin as it may be, still flows through my veins. But kings are done lad in the world of light anyway. They made something decadent out of it, the gunslinger said at last. A play, a game, and his voice was all the unconscious distaste of the aesthetic and eremite. His face, had there been stronger light to illuminate it, would have shown harshness and sorrow, the purest kind of condemnation. His essential force had not been cut or diluted by the passage of years. The lack of imagination that still remained in that face was remarkable. But the ball, the gunslinger said, the sewing mic till. The boy did not speak, did not ask. There were crystal chandeliers, heavy glass with electric spark lights. It was all light. It was an island of light. We sneaked into one of the old balconies, the ones that were supposed to be unsafe and roped off. But we were boys, and boys will be boys, so they will. To us, everything was dangerous, but what of that? Have we not been made to live forever? We thought so, even when we spoke to each other of our glorious deaths. We were above everyone and could look down on everything. I don't remember that any of us said anything. We only drank it up with our eyes. There was a great stone table where the gunslingers and their women sat at meat, watching the dancers. A few of the gunslingers also danced, but only a few, and they were the young ones. The one who sprang the trap on hacks was one of the dancers, I seem to recall. The elders only sat, and it seemed to me they were half embarrassed in all that light, all that civilized light. They were the revered ones, the feared ones, the guardians, but they seemed like hustlers in that crowd of cavaliers with their soft women. There were four circular tables loaded with food, and they turned all the time. The cook's boys never stopped coming and going from seven until three o'clock the next morning. The tables were like clocks. We could smell roast pork, beef, lobster, chickens, baked apples. The odors changed as the tables turned. There were ices and candies. There were great flaming skewers of meat. Martin sat next to my mother and father. I knew them even from so high above. And once she and Martin danced slowly and revolvingly, and the others cleared the floor for them and clapped when it was over. The gunslingers did not clap. 
but my father stood slowly and held his hands out to her, and she went to him, smiling, holding out her own. It was a moment of enormous gravity. Even we felt it in our hiding place. My father had take, by then taken control of his cotet, you must ken, the tet of the gun, and was on the verge of becoming den of Gilead, if not all in world. The rest knew it. Martin knew it better than any, except for Gabrielle. Versus that was. The boy spoke at last with seeming reluctance. She was your mother? Aye, Gabrielle the Waters, daughter of Elaine, wife of Stephen, mother of Roland. The gunslinger spread his hands apart in a mocking little gesture that seemed to say, Here I am, and what of it? Then he dropped them into his lap again. My father was the last Lord of Light. The gunslinger looked down at his hands. The boy said nothing more. I remember how they danced, the gunslinger said. My mother and Martin, the gunslinger's counselor. I remember how they danced, revolving slowly, together and apart in the old steps of courtship. He looked at the boy, smiling, but it meant nothing, you know because power had been passed in some way that none of them knew but all understood, and my mother was grown root and branch to the holder and welder of that power. Was it not so? She went to him when the dance was over, didn't she? And clasped his hands. Did they applaud? Did the hall ring with it as those pretty boys and their soft ladies applauded and lauded him? Did it? Did it? Bitter water dripped distantly in the darkness. The boy said nothing. I remember how they danced, the gunslinger said softly. I remember how they danced. He looked up at the unseeable stone roof, and it seemed for a moment that he might scream at it, rail at it, challenge it blindly, those blind and tongueless tonnages of granite that now bore their tiny lives like microbes in its stone intestine. What hand could have held the knife that did my father to his death? I'm tired, the boy said, and then again and said no more. The gunslinger lapsed into silence. The boy laid over and put one hand between his cheek and the stone. The little flame in front of them gutted. The gunslinger rolled a smoke. It seemed he could see the crystal light still, in the eye of his memory, hear the shout of accolade, empty in a hushed land that stood even then hopeless against the gray ocean of time. Remembering that island of light hurt him bitterly, and he wished he had never borne witness to it or to his father's cuckoldry. He passed smoke between his mouth and nostrils, looking down at the boy. How we make large circles in earth for ourselves, he thought. Around we go, back to the start, and the start is there again, resumption, which was ever the curse of daylight. How long before we see daylight again? He slept. After the sound of his breathing had become long and steady and regular, the boy opened his eyes and looked at the gunslinger with an expression of sickness and love. The last of the fire caught in one pupil for a moment and was drowned there. He went to sleep. The gunslinger had lost most of his time sense in the desert, which was changeless. He lost the rest of it here in the passage under the mountains, which was lightless.
Neither of them had any means of telling the clock, and the concept of hours became meaningless. In a sense, they stood outside of time. A day might have been a week, or a week, a day. They walked, they slept, they ate thin meals that did not satisfy their bellies. Their only companion was a steady thundering rush of water drilling its auger path through the stone. They followed it and drank from its flat, mineral-salted depth, hoping there was nothing in it that would make them sick or kill them. At times the gunslinger thought he saw fugitive drifting lights like corpse lamps beneath its surface, but supposed they were only projections of his brain, which he had not forgotten the light. Still he cautioned the boy not to put his feet in the water. The rangefinder in his head took them steadily on. The path beside the river, for it was a path, was smooth, sunken to a slight concavity, led always upward towards the river's head. At regular intervals they came to a curved stone pylons with sunken ring bolts. Perhaps once oxen or stage horses had been tethered there. At each was a still flagon holding an electric torch, but these were all barren of life and light. During the third period of rest before sleep, the boy wandered away a little. The gunslinger could hear small conversations of rattled pebbles as Jake moved cautiously. Careful, he said. You can't see where you are. It's I'm crawling. It's say. What is it? The gunslinger half crouched, touching the shaft, the heft of one gun. There was a slight pause. The gunslinger strained his eyes uselessly. I think it's a railroad, the boy said dubiously. The gunslinger got up and walked toward the sound of Jake's voice, leading with one foot lightly to test for pitfalls. Here. A small hand reached out, catspawed the gunslinger's face. The boy was very good in the dark, better than Roland himself. His eyes seemed to dilate until there was no color left in them. The gunslinger saw this as he struck a meager light. There was no fuel in this rock womb, and what he had brought with him was going rapidly to ash. At times the urge to strike light was no nigh insatiable. They had discovered one could grow as hungry for food, for light as for food. The boy was standing beside a curved rock wall that was lined with parallel metal staves, running off into the darkness. Each carried black nodes that might have once been conductors of electricity, and beside and below, set only inches off the stone floor, were tracks of bright metal what might have run on those tracks at one time. The gunslinger could only imagine sleek electric bullets firing their courses through this forever night with after-frighted, with the frighted searchlights going before. He had never heard of such things, but there were many remnants of the gone world, just as there were demons. The gunslinger had once come upon a hermit who had gained a quasi-religious power over a miserable flock of cane keepers by possession of an ancient gasoline pump. The hermit crouched beside it, one armed rat possessively around it, and preached wild, guttering sermons. He occasionally placed the still bright, still nozzle, which was attached to a rotted rubber hose, between his legs. On the pump, in perfectly legible, although rust clotted letters, was a legend of unknown meaning Amoco, lead free. Amoco had become the totem of a thunder god, and they had worshipped him with slaughter of sheep. 
and the sound of engines rum 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 hulks the gunslinger thought only meaningless hulks poking from the sand that were once seas and now a railroad we'll follow it he said the boy said nothing the gunslinger extinguished the light and they slept when Roland awoke the boy was up before him sitting on one of the rails and watching him sightlessly in the dark they followed the rails like blind men Roland leading Jake following they slipped their feet along one rail always also like blind men the steady rush of the river off to the right was their companion they did not speak and this went on for three periods of waking the gunslinger felt no urge to think coherently or to plan his sleep was dreamless during the fourth period of waking and walking they literally stumbled onto a hand car the gunslinger ran into it chest high and the boy walking on the other side struck his forehead went down with a cry the gunslinger made a light immediately are you all right the words sounded sharp angry he winced at them yes the boy said holding his head gingerly he shook it once to make sure he'd told the truth they turned to look at what they'd run into it was a flat square plate of metal that sat mutely on the tracks there was a seesaw handle in the center of the square it had descended into a connection of cogs the gunslinger had no immediate sense of the thing's purpose but the boy grasped at it at once it's a hand car what hand car the boy said impatiently like in the old cartoons look he pulled himself up and went to the handle he managed to push it down but it took all his weight hung over the handle to turn the trick the hand car moved a foot with the silent timelessness on the rails good a faint mechanical voice it made them both jump good push a the mechanical voice died out it works a little hard the boy said as if apologizing for the thing the gunslinger pulled himself up beside jake and shoved the handle down the hand car moved forward obediently then stopped good push again the mechanical voice encouraged he had felt a drive shaft turn beneath his feet the operation pleased him and so did the mechanical voice although he intended to listen to that no longer than necessary other than the pump at the way station this was the first machine he'd seen in years that still worked well but the thing disquieted him too it would take them to their destination that much the quicker he had no doubt whatever the man in black had meant for them to find this too neat huh the boy said his voice was full of loathing and the silence was deep Roland could hear his organs at work inside his body the drip of water and nothing else you stand on one side I stand on the other Jake said you'll have to push by yourself until it gets rolling good then I can help first you push then I push we'll go right along get it I get it the gunslinger said his hands were in helpless despairing fists but you'll have to push by yourself until it gets rolling good the boy repeated looking at him the gunslinger had a sudden vivid picture of the great hall a year or so after the sewing night cotillion it by then it had been nothing but shattered shards in the wake of the revolt civil strife and invasion this image was followed by one of Allie, the scarred woman from tall 
pushed and pulled by the bullets that were killing her for no reason at all, unless reflex was a reason. Next came Cuthbert Allgood's face, laughing as he went downhill to his death, still blowing that goddamn's horn. And then he saw Susan's face, twisted, made ugly with weeping. All my old friends, the gunslinger thought, and smiled hideously. I'll push, the gunslinger said. He began to push, and when the voice began to speak, Good, push again. Good, push again. He sent his hand fumbling along the post upon which the seesaw handle had been placed. At last he found what he was surely looking for, a button. He pushed it. Goodbye, pal, the mechanical voice said cheerily, and was then blissedly silent for some hours. They rolled on through the dark, faster now, no longer having to feel their way. The mechanical voice spoke up once, suggesting they eat at Crispola, and then again to say that nothing satisfied the end of a hard day like Larchie's. Following the second piece of advice, it spoke no more. Once the awkwardness of a buried age had been run off the handcar, it went smoothly. The boy tried to do his share, and the gunslinger allowed him small shifts, but mostly he pumped by himself in large drift, stretching risings and fallings. The underground river was their companion, sometimes closer on their right, and sometimes farther away. Once it took on huge and thunderous hollowness, as if passing through some great cathedral narthex. Once the sound of it disappeared almost altogether. The speed and the speed and the made wind against their faces seemed to take the place of sight and to drop them once again into a frame of time. The gunslinger estimated they were making anywhere from ten to fifteen miles an hour, always on the shallow almost imperceptible uphill grade that wore him out deceptively. When they stopped, he slept like the stone itself. Their food was almost gone again. Neither of them worried about it. For the gunslinger, a tenseness was coming, of a coming climax, was as imperceptible but as real and as, as assertive as the fatigue of the propelling handcar. They were close to the end of the beginning, or at least he was. He felt like a performer placed on center stage minutes before the rise of the curtain, settled in position with his first line held securely in his mind. He heard the unseen audience rattling programs and settling in their seats. He lived with a tight, tidy ball of unholy anticipation in his belly and welcomed the exercise that let him sleep. And when he did sleep, it was like the dead. The boy spoke less and less, but at their stopping place, one sleep period not long before they were attacked by the slow mutants, he asked the gunslinger almost shyly about his coming of age. For I would hear more of that, he said. The gunslinger had been leaning back against the handle, a cigarette from his dwindling supply of tobacco clamped in his lips. He'd been on the verge of his usual unthinking sleep when the boy asked his question. Why would he still know that, he asked, amused. The boy's voice was curiously stubborn, as if hiding embarrassment. I just would. And after a pause, he added, always wondered about growing up. I bet it's mostly lies. What you'd hear of wasn't my growing up, the gunslinger said. 
I suppose I did the first of that not long after what thee'd hear of. When you fought your teacher, Jake said remotely, that's what I want to hear. Roland nodded. Yes, of course. The day he had tried the line. That was a story any boy might want to hear, all right. My real growing up it didn't start until after my da sent me away. I finished doing it at one place and another along the way. He paused. I saw a knot man hung once. A knot man? I don't understand. You could feel him, but you couldn't see him. Jake nodded, seeming to understand. Excuse me, he was invisible. Roland raised his eyebrows. He had never heard the word before. Do you say so? Yes. Then let it be so. In any case, there were folks who didn't want me to do it. Felt they'd be cursed if I did it. But the fellow had gotten a taste for rape. Do you know what that is? Yes, Jake said. And I bet an invisible guy would be really good at it, too. How'd you catch him? That's a tell for another day. Knowing there would be no other days. Both of them knowing there would be no others. Two years after that, I left a girl in a place called Kingstown, although I didn't want to. Sure you did, the boy said, and the contempt in his voice was no less for the softness of his tone. Gotta catch up with that tower, am I right? Gotta keep a riding, just like the cowboys on my dad's network. Roland felt his face flush with heat in the dark, but when he spoke, his voice was even. That was the last part, I guess. Of my growing up, I mean. I never knew any of the parts when they were happening. Only later did I know that. He realized with some unease that he was avoiding what the boy wanted to hear. I suppose the coming of age was a part of it at that, he said almost grudgingly. It was formal, almost stylized like a dance. He laughed unpleasantly. The boy said nothing. It was necessary to prove oneself in battle, the gunslinger began. Hi, and welcome back to Sepa Stories. And I've had some technical difficulties today. <laughs> I think I have read this section three times, and you can't say I don't have a dedication to getting this uh, to you. So. Let's pick up a little bit where we left off. We have Roland and the boy, Jake, traveling through the mountain, inside the mountain. And they're, um, they've kind of lost a sense of time and, and space even. And Jake has asked at one of the points that they are resting and waking in the darkness for Roland to tell him the story of him trying the line, his coming of age, or his manhood story. This is actually one of my favorite parts of the book, one of my favorite sections of this particular story. So I really hope I can get this up for you and that, you know, you have this to listen to. So I'm going to pick up a little bit back so that we have a smooth transition in. And wish me luck, third time's a charm. And let's make this happen. All right. I suppose the coming of age was a part of it at that, he said, almost grudgingly. It was formal, almost stylized, like a dance. He laughed unpleasantly. The boy said nothing. It was necessary to prove oneself in battle, the gunslinger began. Summer and hot 
Full Earth had come to the land like a vampire lover that year, killing the land and crops of the tenant farmers, turning the fields of the castle city of Gilead white and sterile. In the west, some miles distant and near the borders that were at the end of the civilized world, fighting had already begun. All reports were bad, all of them paled to insignificance before the heat that rested over this place of the center. Cattle lolled empty-eyed in the pens of the stockyards. Pigs grunted lustlessly, unmindful of sows and sex and knives whetted for the coming fall. People whined about the taxes and conscription, as they always did. But there was an apathy beneath the empty passion play of politics. The center had frayed like a rag rug that had been washed and walked on and shaken and hung and dried. The thread that held the last jewel at the breast of the world was unraveling. Things were not holding together. The earth drew in its breath in the summer of the coming eclipse. The boy idled along the upper corridor at this stone place which was home, sensing these things and not understanding. He was also dangerous and empty, waiting to be filled. It was three years since the hanging of the cook, who had always been able to find snacks for hungry boys. Roland had lengthened and filled out at both shoulder and hip. Now, dressed in faded denim pants, fourteen years old, he had come to look like the man he would become, lean and lank and quick on his feet. He was still unbedded, but two of the younger slatterns of a Westtown merchant had cast eyes on him. He had felt a response and felt it more strongly now. Even in the coolness of the passage, he felt sweat on his body. Ahead were his mother's apartments, and he approached them incuriously, meaning only to pass them, and to go forward, upward to the roof, where a thin breeze and the pleasure of his hand awaited. He had passed the door when a voice called him, You, boy! It was Martin, the counselor. He was dressed with a suspicious, upsetting casualness, black whipcord trousers almost as tight as leotards, and a white shirt opened halfway down his hairless chest. His hair was tousled. The boy looked at him silently. Come in, come in. Don't stand in the hall. Your mother wants to speak to you. He was smiling with his mouth, but the lines of his face held a deeper, more sardonic humor. Beneath that, and in his eyes, there was only coldness. In truth, his mother did not seem to want to see him. She sat in the low-backed chair by the large window in the central parlor of her apartments, the one which overlooked the hot blank stone of the central courtyard. She was dressed in a loose and formal gown that kept slipping from one white shoulder, and looked at the boy only once, a quick, glinting, rueful smile, like an autumn sun on a rill of water. During the interview which followed, she studied her hands rather than her son. He saw her seldom now in the phantom cradle songs, Jesset, 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 had almost faded from his brain, but she was a beloved stranger. He felt an amorphous fear and in hatred for Martin, his father's closest advisor was born.
"'Are you well, Roe?' she asked him softly. Martin stood beside her a heavy, disturbing hand, near the juncture of her white shoulder and white neck, smiling on them both. His brown eyes were dark to the point of blackness with smiling. "'Yes,' he said. "'Your studies go well? Venet is pleased? In court?' Her mouth quirked at the second name, as if she had tasted something bitter. "'I'm trying,' he said, and they both knew he was not flashingly intelligent like Cuthbert, or even quick like Jamie. He was a plotter and a bludgeoner. Even Lynn was better at studies. "'And David?' She knew his affection for the hawk. The boy looked up at Martin, still smiling paternally down on all of this. Past his prime. His mother seemed to wince, and for a moment Martin's face seemed to darken, his grip on her shoulder to tighten. Then she looked out into the hot whiteness of the day, and all was as it had been. It's a charade, he thought, a game. Who is playing with whom? You have a cut on your forehead, Martin said, still smiling, and pointed a negligent finger at the mark of Court's latest, thank you very much for this instructive day, bashing. Are you going to be a fighter like your father, or are you just slow? This time she did wince. Both, the boy said. He looked steadily at Martin and smiled painfully. Even in here, it was very hot. Martin stopped smiling abruptly. You can go to the roof now, boy. I believe you have business there. My mother has not yet dismissed me, bondsman. Martin's face twisted as the boy, as if the boy had lashed him with a quirt. The boy heard his mother's dreadful, woeful gasp. She spoke his name, but the painful smile remained intact on the boy's face, and he stepped forward. Will you give me a sign of fealty, bondsman, and the name of my father, whom you serve? Martin stared at him frankly, rankly, unbelieving. Go, Martin said gently. Go and find your hand. Smiling rather horribly, the boy went. As he closed the door and went back the way he came, he heard his mother well. It was a banshee sound, and then, unbelievably, the sound of his father's man striking her and telling her to shut her quack. To shut her quack. Then he heard Martin's laugh. The boy continued to smile as he went to his test. Jamie had come from the shops, and when he saw the boy crossing the exercise yard, he ran to tell Roland the latest gossip of bloodshed and revolt to the West. But he fell aside, the words all unspoken. They had known each other since the time of infancy, and as boys they had dared each other, cuffed each other, and made a thousand explorations of the walls within which they had both been birthed. The boy strode past him, staring without seeing, grinning his painful grin. He was walking towards Court's cottage, where the shades were drawn to ward off the savage afternoon heat. Court napped in the afternoon so he could enjoy the fullest, to the fullest extent, his evening tomcat forays into the mazed and filthy brothels of the lower town. Jamie knew in a flash of intuition what was to come and in his fear and ecstasy he was torn between following Roland and going after the others. 
Then his hypnotism was broken, and he ran towards the main building, screaming, Cuthbert, Elaine, Thomas! The screams sounded puny and thin in the heat. They had all known, all of them, that intuitive way boys have, that Roland would be the first of them to try the line. But this was too soon. The hideous grin on Roland's face galvanized him as no news of wars, revolts, and witchcrafts could have done. This was more than words from a toothless mouth given over fly-specked heads of lettuce. Roland walked to the cottage of his teacher and kicked the door open. It slammed backward, hit the plain rough plaster of the wall, and rebounded. He had never been inside before. The entrance opened on an austere kitchen that was cool and brown, a table, two street chairs, two cabinets, a faded linoleum floor tracked in black paths from the cooler set into the floor to the counter where the knives hung and to the table. Here was a public man's privacy, the faded refuge of a violent midnight carouser who had loved the boys of three generations roughly and made some of them into gunslingers. Court! He kicked the table, sending it across the room and into the counter. Knives from the wall rack fell in twinkling jack straws. There was a thick stirring in the other room, a half-sleep clearing of the throat. The boy did not enter, knowing it was a sham, knowing the court had awakened immediately in the cottage's other room and stood with one glittering eye beside the door, waiting to break the intruder's unwary neck. Court, I want you, bondsman. Now he spoke the high speech, and Court swung the door open. He was dressed in a thin underwear shorts, a squat man with bow legs, runnelled with scars from top to toe, thick with twists of muscle. There was a round, bulging belly, and the boy knew from experience that it was sprung still. The good, the one good eye glared at him from the bashed and dented hairless head. The boy saluted formally. Teach me no more, bondsman. Today I teach you. You are yourly puler, Court said casually. But he also spoke the high speech. Two years early, to the very best, I should judge. I will ask only once, will you cry off? The boy only smiled his hideous, painful smile, for Court, who had seen the smile on a score of bloodied scarlet skied fields of honor and dishonor, it was answer enough, perhaps the only answer he would have believed. It's too bad, the teacher said absently. You have been a most promising pupil, the best in two thousand years, I should say. It will be sad to see you broken and set upon a blind path. But the world has moved on. Bad times are on horseback. The boy still did not speak, and would have been incapable of any coherent explanation had it been required. But for the first time, the awful smile softened a little. Still, there is the line of blood, Court said, revolt in witchcraft to the west or no. I am your bondsman, boy. I recognize your command and bow to it now, if never again, with all my heart. And Court, who had cuffed him, kicked him, bled him, cursed him, made mock of him, and called him the very eye of syphilis, bent to one knee and bowed his head.
The boy touched the leathery, vulnerable flesh of his neck with wonder. Rise, bondsman, in love. Court stood slowly, and there might have been pain behind the impassive mask of his reamed features. This is a waste. Cry off, you foolish boy. I break my own oath. Cry off and wait. The boy said nothing. Very well. If you say so, let it be so. Court's voice became dry and businesslike. One hour, and the weapon of your choice. You will bring your stick? I always have. How many sticks have been taken from you, Court? Which was tantamount to asking. How many boys have entered the square yard beyond the great hall and returned as gunslinger apprentices? No stick will be taken from me today, Court said slowly. I regret it. There is only the once, boy. The penalty for over-eagerness is the same as the penalty for unworthiness. Can you not wait? The boy recalled Martin standing over him, the smile, and the sound of the blow from behind the closed door. No. Very well. What weapon do you choose? The boy said nothing. Court's smile showed a jagged ring of teeth, wise enough to begin. In an hour. You realize you will in all probability never see your father, your mother, or your cow babbies again. I know what exile means, Roman, Roland said softly. Go now, and meditate on your father's face, much good it'll do you. The boy went, without looking back. The cellar of the barn was cool, dank, smelling of cobwebs and earth water. The sun lit in dusty rays from the narrow windows, but here was none of the day's heat. The boy kept the hawk here, and the bird seemed comfortable enough. David no longer hunted the sky. His feather had lost the radiant animal brightness of three years ago, but the eyes were still as piercing and motionless as ever. You cannot friend a hawk, they said, unless you are half hawk yourself, alone, and only a sojourner in the land, without friends or the need of them. The hawk pays no coinage to love or morals. David was an old hawk now. The boy hoped that he himself was a young one. Hi, he said softly and extended his arm to the tethered perch. The hawk stepped onto the boy's arm and stood motionless and hooded. With the other hand, the boy reached into his pocket and fished out a bit of dried jerky. The hawk snapped it deftly from between his fingers and made it disappear. The boy began to stroke David very carefully. Court most probably would not have believed it had he seen it. But Court did not believe the boy's time had come either. I think you die today, he said, continuing to stroke. I think you will be made a sacrifice like all those little birds we trained you on. Do you remember? No, it doesn't matter. After today, I am the hawk, and each year on this day, I'll shoot the sky in your memory. David stood on his arm, silent and unblinking, indifferent to his life or death. You are old, the boy said reflectively, and perhaps not my friend. Even a year ago you would have had my eyes instead of that little string of meat. Isn't it so? Court would laugh, but if we get close enough, close enough to that charry man, if he don't suspect, 
Which will it be, David? Age or friendship? David did not say. The boy hooded him and found the jesses which were looped at the end of David's perch. They left the barn. The yard behind the great hall was not really a yard at all, but only a green corridor whose walls were formed by a tangled, thick-grown hedges. It had been used for the rite of coming of age since time out of mind, long before Court and his predecessor, Mark, who had died of a stab wound from an overzealous hand in this place. Many boys had left the corridor from the east end, where the teacher always entered as men. The east end faced the great hall and all of the civilization and intrigue of the lighted world. Many more had slunk away, beaten and bloody from the west end, where the boys always entered, as boys forever. The west end faced the farms, and the hut-dwellers beyond the farms. Beyond that, the tangled barbarian forests. Beyond that, Garland. And beyond Garland, the Mohane Desert. The boy who became a man progressed from darkness and unlearning to the light and responsibility. The boy who was beaten could only retreat forever and ever. The hallway was as smooth and green as a gaming field. It was exactly 50 yards long. In the middle was a swatch of shaven earth. This was the line. At each end, each end was usually clogged with tense spectators and relatives, for the ritual was usually forecast with great accuracy. Eighteen was the most common age. Those who had not made their test by the age of twenty-five usually slipped into obscurity as freeholders, unable to face the brutal all-or-nothing fact of the field and the test. But on this day there were none but Jamie de Curry, Cuthbert Allgood, Elaine Johns, and Thomas Whitman. They clustered at the boy's end, gape-mouthed and, frankly, terrified. "'Your weapon, stupid!' Cuthbert hissed in agony. "'You forgot your weapon!' "'I have it,' the boy said. And dimly he wondered if the news of this lunacy had reached yet to the central buildings, to his mother and to Martin. His father was on a hunt, not due back for days, and this he felt a sense of shame, for he felt that in his father he would, found, would have found understanding, if not approval.' Has court come? Court is here. The voice came from the far end of the corridor, and court stepped into view, dressed in a short singlet. A heavy leather band encircled his forehead to keep sweat from his eyes. He wore a dirty girdle to hold his back straight. He held an iron wood stick, sharp on one end, heavily blunted and spatulate on the other. He began the litany which all of them, chosen by the blind blood of their fathers, all the way back to the eld, had known since early childhood, leaned against the day, learned against the day when they would, perchance, become men. Have you come here for a serious purpose, boy? I have come for a serious purpose. Have you come as an outcast from your father's house? I have come so and would remain so, outcast until he had bested court. If court bested him, he would remain outcast forever. Have you come with your chosen weapon? I have. 
What is your weapon? This was the teacher's advantage, his chance to adjust his plan of battle to the sling, or spear, or bow or bow. My weapon is David. Court halted only briefly. He was surprised and very likely confused, and that was good. Might be good. So then, have at you, boy. So then, have you at me, boy. I do. And whose name? In the name of my father, say his name. Stephen Deshane of the line of Eld. Be swift, then. And Court advanced into the corridor, switching his stick from hand one hand to the other. The boy sighed flutteringly like birds as their dad-din stepped to meet him. My weapon is David, teacher. Did Court understand? If so, did he understand fully? If he did, very likely all was lost. It turned on surprise, and on whatever stuff the hawk still had left in him. Would he only sit, disinterested and stupid, on the boy's arm while Court struck him brainless with the ironwood? Would seek escape in the high, hot sky? As they drew close together, each for the knot still on his side of the line, the boy loosened the hawk's hood with nerveless fingers. It dropped to the green grass, and Court halted in his tracks. He saw the old warrior's eyes drop to the bird and widen with surprise and slow dawning comprehension. Now he understood. Oh, you little fool! Court nearly groaned, and Roland was suddenly furious that he should be spoken to so. At him! he cried, raising his arm. And David flew, like a silent brown bullet, stubby wings pumping once, twice, three times before crashing into Court's face, talons searching, beak digging, red drops flew up into the hot air. Hi, Roland! Cuthbert screamed deliriously. First blood! First blood to my bosom! He struck his chest hard enough to leave a bruise there that would not fade for a week. Court staggered backwards, off balance. The ironwood staff rose and beat futilely at the air about his head. The hawk was an undulating, blurred bundle of feathers. The boy, meanwhile, arrowed forward. His hand held out in a very straight ridge, his elbow locked, and this was his chance, and very likely the only one he'd have. Still, Court was almost too quick for him. The bird had covered ninety percent of his vision, but the iron wood came up again, spatula in forward, and Court cold-bloodedly performed the only action that could turn events at this point. He beat his own face three times, bisects flexing mercilessly. David fell away, broken and twisted. One wink flapped frantically at the ground. His cold predator's eyes stared fiercely into the teacher's bloody, streaming face. Court's bad eye now bulged blindly from its socket. The boy delivered a kick to Court's temple, connecting solidly. It should have ended, but it did not. For a moment, Court's face went slack, and then he lunged, grabbing for the boy's foot. The boy skipped back and tripped over his own feet. He went down a sprawl. He heard from far away the sound of Jamie screaming in dismay. Court was ready to fall on him and finish it. Roland had lost his advantage, and both of them knew it. For a moment, they looked at each other, the teacher standing over the pupil, with gouts of blood pouring from the left side of his face, the bad eye now closed except for a thin slit of white. There would be no brothels for Court this night.
Something ripped jaggedly at the boy's hand. It was David, tearing blindly at whatever he could reach. Both wings were broken. It was incredible that he still lived. The boy grabbed him like a stone, unmindful of the jabbing, diving beak that was taking the flesh from his wrist and ribbons. As Court flew at him, all spread-eagled, the boy threw the hawk upward. Hi, David! Kill! Then David blotted out the sun and came down. Sorry. Hi, David! Kill! Then Court blotted out the sun, came down atop of him. The bird was smashed between them, and the boy felt a calloused thumb probe for the socket of his eye. He turned it, at the same time bringing up the slab of his thigh to block Quart's crotch-seeking knee. His own hand flailed against the tree of Quart's neck. In three hard chops, it was like hitting ribbed stone. Then Quart made a thick grunting. His body shuddered. Faintly, the boy saw one hand flailing for the dropped stick, and with a jackknifing lunge, he kicked it out of reach. David had hooked one talon into Quart's right ear. The other battered mercilessly at the teacher's cheek, making it a ruin. Blood sputtered the, splattered the boy's face, smelling of sheared copper. Quart's fist struck the bird once, breaking its back. Again, the neck snapped away at a crooked ankle, and still the talon clutched. There was no ear now, only a red hole tunneled into the side of Quart's skull. The third blow sent the bird flying, at last clearing Quart's face. The moment it was clear, the boy brought the edge of his hand across the bridge of his teacher's nose, using every bit of his strength and breaking the thin bone blood sprayed. Quartz's grasping, unseeing hand ripped at the boy's buttocks, trying to pull his trousers down, trying to hobble him. Roland rolled away, found Quartz's neck, and rose to his knees. Quartz came to his own knees, grinning. Incredibly, they faced each other that way from either side of the line, although they had switched positions, and Quartz was now on the side where Roland had begun the contest. The old warrior's face was curtained with gore. The one seeing eye rolled furiously in its socket. Both cheeks, both cheeks hung in flaps. The boy held the man's stick like a Grand Point's player waiting for the pitch of the rawhide bird. Court double-fainted, then came directly at him. Roland was ready, not fooled in the slightest by this last trick, which they both knew was a poor one. The iron wood swung in a flat arc, striking Quart's skull with a dull, thudding noise. Quart fell on his side, looking at the boy with lazy, unseeing expression. A tiny, trickle of spit came from his mouth. Yield or die, the boy said. His mouth was filled with wet cotton. And Quart smiled. Nearly all consciousness was gone, and he would remain tended in his cottage for a week afterwards, wrapped in the blackness of a coma. But now he held on with all the strength of his pitiless, shuttleless life. He saw the need to palaver in the boy's eyes, and even with the curtain of blood between the two of them, understood that need was desperate. I yield, gunslinger, I yield, smiling. You have this day remembered the face of your father and all of those who came before him. What a wonder you have done. Court's clear eye closed. The gunslinger shook him gently, but with persistence. 
The others were around him now, their hands trembling to thump his back and hoist him on their shoulders, but they held back, afraid, sensing a new gulf. Yet this was not as strange as it could have been, because there had always been a gulf between this one and the rest. Court's eye rolled open again. The key, the gunslinger said. My birthright, teacher. I need it. His birthright was the guns. Not the heavy ones of his father, weighted with sandalwood, but guns all the same, forbidden to all but a few. In the heavy vault under the barracks, where he, by ancient law, was now required to abide, away from his mother's breast, hung his apprentice weapons, heavy cumbersome barrel shooters of steel and nickel. Yet they had seen his father through his apprenticeship, and his father now ruled, at least in name. Is your need so fearsome, then? Court muttered, as if in his sleep. So pressing, I've heard so. So much need should have made you stupid, yet you won. The key, the hawk, was a fine ploy, a fine weapon. How long did it take you to train the bastard? I never trained David. I friended him. The key. Under my belt, gunslinger. The eye closed again. The gunslinger reached under Quartz's belt. Feeling the heavy press of the man's belly, the huge muscles there now slack in the sleep. The key was on a brass ring. He clutched it in his hand, restraining the mad urge to thrust it to the sky in a salutation of victory. He got to his feet and was finally turning to the others when Court's hand fumbled for his foot. For a moment, the gunslinger feared some last attack and tensed, but Court only looked up at him and beckoned with one crusted finger. I'm going to sleep now, Court whispered calmly. I'm going to walk the path, perhaps all the way to the clearing at the end of it. I don't know. I teach you no more, gunslinger. You have surpassed me, and two years younger than your father, who was the youngest. But let me counsel. What? Impatiently. Wipe that look off your face, maggot. In his surprise, Roland did as he was bid, although being crouched, hidden behind his face, as we all are, could not know it. Court nodded and whispered a single word. Wait. What? The effort it took the man to speak lent his word great emphasis. Let the word and the legend go before you. There are those who will carry both. His eyes flicked over the gunslinger's shoulder. Fools, perchance. Let your shadow grow hair on its face. Let it become dark. He smiled grotesquely. Given time, words may even enchant an enchanter. Do you take my meaning, gunslinger? Yes, I think I do. Will you take my last counsel as your teacher? The gunslinger rocked back on heels, on his heels, a hunkered, thinking display that foreshadowed the man. He looked at the sky. It was deepening, purpling. The heat of the day was failing, and the thunderheads in the west foretold rain. Lightning times jabbed the placid flank of the rising foothills miles distant. Beyond that, the mountains. Beyond that, the rising fountains of blood and unreason. He was tired, tired into his bones and beyond. 
He looked back at Court. I will bury my hawk tonight, teacher, and later go into the lower town to inform those in the brothels that will wonder about you. Perhaps I will comfort one or two a little. Court's lips parted in a pained smile, and then he slept. The gunslinger got to his feet and turned to the others. Make a litter and take him to his house, then bring a nurse. No, two nurses, okay? They still watched him, caught in a baited moment that none of them could immediately break. They still looked for a corona, a fire, or a magical change of features. Two nurses, the gunslinger repeated, and then smiled. They smiled in return, nervously. You goddamned horse drover, Cuthbert suddenly yelled, grinning. You haven't left enough meat for the rest of us to pick off the bone. The world won't move on tomorrow, the gunslinger said, quoting the old adage with a smile. Elaine, you butterbutt, move your freight. Elaine set about the business of making the litter. Tomas and Jamie went together to the main hall and the infirmary. The gunslinger and Cuthbert looked at each other. They had always been the closest, or as close as they could be under the particular shades of their character. There was a speculative, open light in Bert's eyes, and the gunslinger controlled, only with great difficulty, the need to tell him not to call for the test for a year, or even eighteen months, lest he go west. But they had been through a great ordeal together, and the gunslinger did not feel he could risk saying such a thing without a look on his face that might be taken for arrogance. I have begun to scheme, he thought, and was a little dismayed. Then he thought of Martin, of his mother, and he smiled a deceiver's smile at his friend. I am to be the first, he thought, knowing it for the first time, although he thought of it idly many times before. I am the first. Let's go, he said. With pleasure, gunslinger. They left by the east end of the hedged-bordered corridor. Thomas, Thomas and Jamie were returning with the nurses already. They looked like ghosts in their white and gauzy summer robes, crossed at the breast with red. Shall I help you with the hawk? Cuthbert asked. Yes, the gunslinger said. That would be lovely, Bart. And later... When the darkness had come, and the rushing thunder showers with it, while huge phantom cassiums rolled across the sky, and lightning washed the crooked streets of the lower town in blue fire, while horses stood at hitching rails with their heads hung down and their tails drooping, the gunslinger took a woman and lay with her. It was quick and good, and when it was over, they lay side by side without speaking, and it began to hail with a brief rattling ferocity. Downstairs and far away, someone was playing Hey Jude ragtime. The gunslinger's mind turned reflectively inward. It was in that hell-splattered silence just before sleep overtook him that the first thought that he first thought that he might also be the last. The gunslinger didn't tell the boy all of this, but perhaps most of it came through anyway. He had already realized that this was an extremely perceptive boy, not so different from Elaine, who was strong in that half-empathy, half-telepathy they called the touch. You asleep? the gunslinger asked. No. Did you understand what I told you? Understand it? 
The boy asked with surprising scorn. Understand it? Are you kidding? No. But the gunslinger felt defensive. He had never told anyone about his coming of age before, because he felt ambivalent about it. Of course, the hawk had been a perfectly acceptable weapon, yet it had been a trick, too, and a betrayal, the first of many. And tell me, am I really preparing to throw this boy at the man in black? I understand it all right, the boy said. It was a game, wasn't it? Do grown men always have to play games? Does everything have to be an excuse for another kind of game? Do any men grow up? Or do they only come of age? You don't know everything, the gunslinger said, trying to hold his slow anger. You're just a boy. Sure, but I know what I am to you. What is that? The gunslinger asked tightly. A poker chip. The gunslinger felt an urge to find a rock and brain the boy. Instead, he spoke calmly. Go to sleep. Boys need their sleep. And in his mind, he heard Martin's echo. Go and find your hand. He sat stiffly in the darkness, stunned with horror and terrified, for the first time in his existence, of the self-loathing that might come afterward. All right, my friends. We're going to pause here and just um, interject a very quick um, insight and, and talk about this a moment. I love this. I love the entire coming-of-age story that Roland shares with Jake. The writing style is brilliant. We see that Roland has come across his mother and Martin in her bedchambers, and Martin makes a point to bring Roland in and basically make a show of this. And Roland is wondering who's playing who. So that's really very um, telling. So this confrontation with Martin and, and his mother, and Martin, go find your hand, and then hearing his mother cry and the slap, and Martin telling her to, to shut her quack, you know, this utter disrespect and infringement on behalf of his father, and maybe even himself, I think is what leads Roland to seek his test of manhood at that moment. He wants to kill Martin, that's obvious. And the only way he can do that, he thinks, I believe, is with guns. And the only way to get the guns is to confront and best court in his test of manhood because court holds the keys. So I loved how all of this unfolded. Just like we had stories within stories falling in on each other, now we have motive falling inside of motive. And I thought it was just brilliantly written. The use of David, the hawk, as a weapon um, is really the first time that Roland, I think, acknowledges that, yes, it was a trick. The, the hawk made a fine weapon, but it was a trick and a betrayal. He had friended the hawk, and in this very first test of his manhood, the very first action of becoming a man, he betrays a friend or uses a friend to achieve his own ends, which is passing the test, um, proving the line. So in the storytelling, you have Court very, very much trying to get Roland to call off, to cry off, to wait, and he doesn't. 
court advises him after Roland does successfully manage to win his trial to wait to let his shadow grow dark and I thought this was a wonderful detail that this may even enchant and enchant her and in that moment you know that it's not just Roland who has been seeing everything if court who is his teacher is aware that Martin who is the enchanter you know is who Roland is angry at then everyone must know that there's something going on between Gabrielle Duchesne and the gunslinger's, you know, counselor, his, his right-hand man. So there is this story happening. And, of course, we hear that Roland's father is on a hunt, so he's not present for the test. Then it's also sudden that there was no predicting it to have anyone there to witness it other than his, what, court calls ka-babies or ka-babies or his people that are his children that are his own age his his friends so I am assuming they're all around the same age 13 or 14 maybe 15 and they all are growing up together so he's the first of them to take his manhood test and pass he wants the guns court has told him to wait and at this point you know Roland heeds his teacher's words you know and, and goes down to the brothels and and so the scene ends he tells Jake most of the story and Jake immediately identifies you can tell he can see that he himself is now very much like David was the hawk Roland's hawk now and even Roland alludes to this will I throw this boy at the man in black and I thought that was a beautiful parallel between the right of manhood and now we're passing through this mountain almost you know it's a it's a passage you know a passage of one into another a passage of darkness into light a passage of childhood into adulthood so I thought that's an interesting compare and contrast you could make that stretch and certainly my mind is doing that and Jake is very angry and resentful of the gunslinger. You can hear it in the way that he speaks to the gunslinger, confronts him about his future use as a, I'm a poker chip. I know what I am to you, a poker chip. You know, Roland's like, what is that? And then Roland's saying, you know, go to sleep. Boys need their sleep. And the echoing voice, he remembered how he felt, or Martin's word, go find your hand. You know, so... I can kind of see the compare and contrast between both situations and to me it's these details outside of the wonderful action which reads like a cinematic cinematic um, movie epic I mean I can see everything it's visual the greenness the the thwacking you know of hitting court with the ironwood stick the hawk you know um, latching itself to court space all of these are very visual images and it's so descriptively written and the pacing is fast and it's marvelous i really loved all of that but i like the deeper contrast too so to me this is an example of what a perfect piece of writing is <laughs> and I was so very happy to read this and it looks like yay I'm going to get to be able to post this I'm keeping my fingers crossed my save button will work <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to you 
having enjoyed this. We'll next be continuing our journey with Jake and Roland. As I've mentioned, this is a really long chapter, possibly the longest in the book. It feels like it. And we're still under the mountain, and I know we're trying to get to the other side, so I'm going to take another short pause, and when I come back, we'll finish this chapter and then proceed to the gunslinger and man in black, potentially in this read, maybe in one more episode. We'll see. Thank you for listening to Suffa Stories, and I'll be right back. Hi, and welcome back to Seppa Stories. And thank you very much for joining me with or through this adventure with Jake and Roland as they have traversed in pursuit of the man in black. So, continuing onward, and Jake and Roland have just kind of had a little tiff. And they're still under the mountain and Roland has just told Jake about his test of manhood and of course it's been a little tense between them their relationship is becoming a little more complicated so we're going to progress with the story and as I had mentioned this seems to be there's just a lot that happens in this particular chapter a lot so I will be breaking and we'll have probably one additional rest um, as soon as I finish this next segment. And so there's really going to be two more segments, this one and one other, for the reading of this chapter, which is chapter four. And then I will post up a secondary final chapter and that'll come up uh, pretty quickly. So. I'll be posting these kind of in tandem so that you can hear the whole story. I don't want you to have to wait. All right, so with that, today's a day of reading. It is a holiday for me where I'm at. And without further ado, let's keep going. We've got a long way to go under the mountain. During the next period of waking, the railroad angled closer to the underground river, and they came upon the slow mutants. Jake saw the first one and screamed aloud. The gunslinger's head, which had been fixed straight forward as he pumped the handcar, jerked to the right. There was a rotten jack-o'-lantern greenness below them, pulsating faintly. For the first time he became aware of odor, faint, unpleasant, wet. The greenness was a face, what might have been called a face by one of charitable bent. Above the flattened nose was an insectile note of eyes, peering at them expressionlessly. The gunslinger felt a crawl in his intestines and privates. He stepped up the rhythm of the arms and the handcar slightly. The glowing face faded. What the hell was that? the boy asked, crawling to him. What? The words stopped dumb in his throat as they came upon, then passed a group of three faintly glowing forms, standing between the rails and the invisible river, watching them, motionless. They're slow mutants, the gunslinger said. I don't think they'll bother us. They're probably just as frightened of us as we are of one of the forms broke free and shambled toward them. The face was that of a starving idiot. 
the faint naked body had been transformed into a knotted mess of tentacular limbs and suckers. The boys screamed again and crowded against the gunslinger's leg like a frightened dog. One of the thing's tentacle arms pawed across the flat platform of the handcar. It reeked of the wet and the dark. The gunslinger let loose of the handle and drew. He put a bullet through the forehead of the starving idiot face. It fell away, its faint swamp fire glow fading in eclipsed moon. A gun flash lay bright and branded on their dark retinas, fading only reluctantly. The smell of expended powder was hot and savage and alien in this buried place. There were others, more of them. None moved against them overtly, but they were closing in on the tracks, a silent, hideous party of rubberneckers. You may have to pump for me, the gunslinger said. Can you? Yes. And be ready. The boy stood close to him, his body poised. His eyes took in the slow mutants only as they passed, not traversing, not seeing more than they had to. The boy assumed a psychic bulge of terror, as if his very id had somehow sprung through his pores to form a shield. If he'd had the touch, the gunslinger reasoned, that was not impossible. The gunslinger pumped steadily, but did not increase his speed. The slow mutants could smell their terror, and he knew that, but he doubted if terror alone would be enough to motivate them. He and the boy were, after all, creatures of the light and whole. How they must hate us, he thought, and wondered if they had hated the man in black in the same way. He thought not, or perhaps he had passed among them only like a shadow of a dark wing in this greater darkness. The boy made a sound in his throat, and the gunslinger turned his head almost casually. Four of them were charging the handcar in a stumbling way, one of them in the process of finding a hand grip. The gunslinger let go of the handle and drew again with a slame, sleepy, casual motion. He shot the lead mutant in the head. The mutant made a sighing, sobbing noise and began to grin. Its hands were limp, fish-like, dead. The fingers clove to one another like the fingers of a glove long immersed in drying mud. One of the corpse hands found the boy's foot and began to pull. The boy shrieked aloud in the granite womb. The gunslinger shot the mutant in the chest. It began to slobber through the grin. Jake was going off the side. The gunslinger caught one of his arms and was almost pulled off balance himself. The thing was surprisingly strong. The gunslinger put another bullet in the mutant's head. One eye went out like a candle. Still, it pulled. They engaged in a silent tug-of-war for Jake's jerking, wriggling body. The slow mutants yanked on him like a wishbone. The wish would undoubtedly be to dine. The handcar was slowing down. The others began to close in, the lame, the halt, the blind. Perhaps they only looked for Jesus to heal them, to raise them Lazarus-like from the darkness. It's the end for the boy, the gunslinger thought with perfect coldness. This is the end he meant. Let go and pump, or hold on and be buried. The end for the boy. He gave a tremendous yank on the boy's arm and shot the mutant in the belly. For one frozen moment, its grip grew even more tighter, and Jake began to slide off the edge again. Then the dead mud mitts loosened, and the slow beauty fell on its face behind the slowing handcar still grinning. I thought, I thought you'd leave me, the boy was sobbing. I thought, I thought, 
hold on to my belt, the gunslinger said, hold on just as tight as you can. The hand worked into his belt and clutched there. The boy was breathing in great convulsive silent gasps. The gunslinger began to pump steadily again, and the hand car picked up speed. The slow mutants fell back a step and watched them go, with faces hardly human or pathetically so. Faces that generated the weak phosphorescence common to those weird deep-sea fishes that live under incredible black pressure. Faces that held no anger or hate, but only what seemed to be a semi-conscious idiot regret. They're thinning, the gunslinger said. The drawn-up muscles of his lower belly and privates relaxed the smallest bit. There, the slow mutants had put rocks across the track. The way was blocked. It had been a quick, poor job, perhaps the work of only a minute to clear, but they were stopped, and someone would have to get down and move them. The boy moaned and shuddered closer to the gunslinger. The gunslinger let go of the handle, and the handcar coasted noiselessly to the rocks where it thumped to a rest. The slow mutants began to close in again, almost casually, as if they had been passing by, lost in a dream of darkness, and found someone of whom to ask directions, a street corner congregation of the damned beneath the ancient rock. Are they going to get us? The boy asked, calmly. Never in life. Be quiet a second. He looked at the rocks. The mutants were weak, of course, and had not been able to drag any of the boulders to block their way. Only small rocks, only enough to stop them, to make someone get down, the gunslinger said. You'll have to move them. I'll cover you. No, the boy whispered. Please, I can't give you a gun, and I can't move the rocks and shoot, too. You have to get down. Jake's eyes rolled terribly. For a moment, his body shuddered in tune with the turnings of his mind, and then he wriggled over the side and began to throw rocks to the right and left, working with mad speed, not looking up. The gunslinger drew and waited. Two of them, lurching rather than walking, went for the boy with arms like dough. The guns did their work. Stitching the darkness with red-white lances of light that pushed needles of pain into the gunslinger's eyes. The boy screamed and continued to throw rocks to either side. Which glow leaped and danced, hard to see now. That was the worst. Everything had gone to shadows and afterimages. One of them, glowing hardly at all, suddenly reached for the boy with rubber boogeyman arms. Eyes that ate up half the mutie's head rolled wetly. Jake screamed again and turned to struggle. The gunslinger fired without allowing himself to think before his spotty vision could betray his hands into a terrible quiver. The two heads were only inches apart. It was the mutie who fell. Jake threw rocks wildly. The mutants milled just outside the invisible line of trespass, closing in a little at a time, now very close. Others had caught up, swelling their numbers. All right, the gunslinger kid said. Get on, quick. When the boy moved, the mutants came at them. Jake, over the side, scrambling to his feet. The gunslinger was already pumping again, all out, both guns were holstered now. They must run. It was their only chance. Strange hands slapped the metal plane of the car surface. The boy was holding his belt with both hands now, his face pressed tightly into the small of the gunslinger's back. 
A group of them ran onto the tracks, their faces full of that mindless, casual anticipation. The gunslinger was full of adrenaline. The car was flying along the tracks into the darkness. They struck the four or five pitiful hulks full force. They flew like rotted bananas struck from the stem. On and on into the soundless, flying, banshee darkness. After an age, the boy raised his face into the made wind, dreading yet needing to know. The ghost of gunflesh still lingered on his retinas. There was nothing to see but the darkness and nothing to hear but the rumble of the river. They're gone, the boy said, suddenly fearing an end to the tracks in the darkness and the wounding crash as they jumped the rails and plunged to twisted ruin. He had ridden in cars once. His humorless father had driven at ninety on the New Jersey turnpike and had been stopped by a cop who ignored the twenty Elmer Chambers offered with his license and gave him a ticket anyway. But he had never ridden like this, with the wind and the blindness and the terrors behind and ahead, with the sound of the river like a chuckling voice, the voice of the man in black. The gunslinger's arms were pistons in a lunatic human factory. They're gone, the boy said timidly, the words ripped from his mouth by the wind. You can slow down now. We left him behind. But the gunslinger did not hear. They careened onward into the strange dark. They went on for three days without incident. During the fourth period of waking, halfway through, three quarters, they didn't know. They only know that they weren't tired enough yet to stop. There was a sharp thump beneath them. The hand car swayed, and their bodies immediately leaned to the right against gravity as the rails took a gradual turn to the left. There was a light ahead, a glow so faint and alien that it seemed at first to be a totally new element, not earth, air, fire, nor water. It had no color and could only be discerned by the fact that they had regained their hands and faces in a dimension beyond that of touch. Their eyes had become so light-sensitive that they noticed the glow more than five miles before they reached and approached its source. The end, the boy said tightly. It's the end. No, the gunslinger spoke with odd assurance. It isn't. And it was not. They reached light, but not day. As they approached the source of the glow, they saw for the first time that the rock wall to the left had fallen away and their tracks had been joined by others which crossed in a complex spider web. The light laid them in burnished vectors. On some of them there were dark box cars, passenger coaches, a stage that had been adapted to rails. They made the gunslinger nervous, like ghost galleons trapped in an underground sagrasso. The light grew stronger, hurting their eyes a little, but glowing slowly enough to allow them to attempt to adapt. They came from dark to light like divers coming up from deep phantoms and slow stages. Ahead, drawing nearer, was a huge hangar stretching up into the dark, cut into a showing yellow squares of light, were a series of perhaps twenty-four entranceways, growing from the size of toy windows to a height of twenty feet as they drew closer. They passed inside through one of the middle ways. 
Written above were a series of characters in various languages, the gunslinger presumed. He was astounded to find that he could read the last one. It was an ancient root of the high speech itself and said, Track ten to surface and points west. The light inside was brighter. The tracks met and merged through a series of switchings. Here, some of the traffic lanterns still worked, flashing eternal reds and greens and ambers. They rolled between the rising stone piers, caked black with the passage of thousands of vehicles, and then they were in some kind of central terminal. The gunslinger let the handcar coast slowly to a stop, and they peered around. It's like a subway, the boy said. Subway? Never mind. You wouldn't know what I was talking about. I don't even know what I'm talking about. now. not anymore. The boy climbed up into the cracked cement. They looked at silent, deserted booths where newspapers and books had once been traded or sold. A bootery, a weapon shop. The gunslinger suddenly feverish with excitement saw revolvers and rifles. Closer inspection showed that their barrels had been filled with lead. He did, however, pick out a bow which he swung over his back, and an almost useless, badly weighted arrow's quiver, and a useless, I'm so sorry, and a quiver of almost useless, badly weighted arrows. A woman's apparel shop. Somewhere a converter was turning air over and over as it had for thousands of years, but perhaps not for much longer. It had a grating noise somewhere in its cycle, which served to remind that perpetual motion, even under strictly controlled situation, was still a full stream. The air had a mechanized taste. The boy's shoes and the gunslinger's boots made flat echoes. The boys cried out, Hey! Hey! The gunslinger turned around and went to him. The boy was standing, transfixed, at the bookstall. Inside, sprawled in the far corner, was a mummy. It was wearing a blue uniform with gold piping, a trainsman's uniforms by the look. There was an ancient, perfectly preserved newspaper on the dead thing's lap, and it crumbled to dust when the gunslinger touched it. The mummy's face was like an old, shriveled apple. Cautiously, the gunslinger touched the cheek. There was a small puff of dust, when it cleared, they were able to look through the flesh and into the mummy's mouth. A gold tooth twinkled there. Gas, the gunslinger murmured. The old people made a gas that would do this, or so Vinay told us. The one who taught from books? Yes, he. I bet these old people fought wars with it, the boy said darkly. Killed other old people with it. I'm sure you're right. There were perhaps a dozen other mummies. All but two or three were wearing the blue and gold ornamental uniforms. The gunslinger supposed that the gas had been used when the place was empty of most incoming and outgoing traffic. Perhaps once in the demogo, the station had been a military objective of some long-gone army and cause. The thought depressed him. We better go on, he said, and started towards track 10 and the hand car again. But the boy stood rebelliously behind him, not going. The gunslinger turned back, surprised. The boy's face was twisted and trembling. You won't get what you want until I'm dead. I'll take my chances by myself.
The gunslinger nodded noncommittally, hating himself for what he was going to do. Okay, Jake, he said mildly. Long days, pleasant nights. He turned around, walked across to the stone piers, leaped easily down onto the hand car. You made a deal with someone, the boy screamed after him. I know you did. The gunslinger, not replying, carefully put the bow in front of the T-post rising out of the hand car's floor, out of harm's way. The boy's fists were clenched, his features drawn in agony. How easily you bluffed this young boy, the gunslinger told himself. Again and again, his wonderful intuition, his touch, has led him to this point, and again and again, you had led him on past it. And how difficult could it be? After all, he has no friends but you. And in a sudden, simple thought, almost a vision, it came to him that all he had to do was give it over, turn around, take the boy with him, and make him the center of a new force. The tower did not have to be obtained in this humiliating, rope, nose-rubbing way, did it? Let his quest resume after the boy had a growth of years, when the two of them could cast the man a black and sighed like a cheap wind-up toy. Surely, he thought cynically, surely. He knew with sudden coldness that turning backwards would only mean death for both of them. Death, or worse, entombment with the slow muties behind them decay of all the faculties, with perhaps the guns of his father, living long after both of them, kept in rotten splendorous totems, then unlike the unforgotten gas pump. Show some guts, he told himself falsely. He reached for the handle and began to pump it. The hand car moved away from the stone piers. The boy screamed, wait, and began running on the diagonal towards where the handcar would emerge nearer the darkness ahead. The gunslinger had an impulse to speed up, to leave the boy alone, yet at least with an uncertainty. Instead, he caught him as he leapt. The heart beneath the thin shirt thrummed and fluttered as Jake clung to him. The end was very close now. And we're going to stop this section. Our next section have a lot of content and we're going to straight read through and then commentary so stick around and I'll be right back thank you hi and welcome back to Seppa stories so we're coming to the completion of the end of chapter 4 and the last sentence of the last section we were on was poignant. The end was very close now, and let's proceed further before we dive into Chapter 5. All right, thank you for listening to Sapa Stories, and let's see what happens. The end was very close now. The sound of the river had become very loud, filling even their dreams with its thunder. The gunslinger, more as a whim than anything else, let the boy pump them ahead while he shot a number of the bad arrows tethered by the fine white lengths of thread into the dark. The bow was also very bad, 
incredibly preserved, but with a terrible pull and aim despite that, and the gunslinger knew that nothing would approve it. Even restringing would not help the tired wood. The arrows would not fly far into the dark, but the last one he sent out came back wet and slick. The gunslinger only shrugged when the boy asked him how far to the water, but privately he didn't think the arrow could have traveled more than sixty yards from the rotted bow, and lucky to get that far. And still the river's thunder grew louder, closer. During the third waking period after the station, a spectral radiance began to grow again. They had entered a long tunnel of some weird phosphorescent rock, and the wet walls glittered and twinkled with thousands of minute starbursts. The boy called them Fotsuls. He saw them in a kind of eerie horror-house serility. The brute sound of the river was channeled to them by the confining rock, magnified in its own natural amplifier, yet the sound remained oddly constant. Even as they approached the crossing point, the gunslinger was sure it lay ahead, because the walls were widening, drawing back. The angle of their ascent became more pronounced. The tracks narrowed through to the new light. To the gunslinger, the clumps of fossils looked like captive tubes of swamp gas, sometimes sold for a pretty at the Feast of Reaptide Fair. To the boy, they looked like endless streamers of neon tubing. But in this glow, they could both see that the rock that had enclosed them so long ended up ahead in ragged twin peninsulas that pointed toward a gulf of darkness, the chasm over the river. The tracks continued out and over that unknowable drop, supported by a thestral aeons ode. So so sorry. By a thestral sorry, aeons old. Beyond, in what seemed an incredible distance, was a tiny pinprick of light, not phosphorescent or fluorescent, but the hard, true light of day. It was as tiny as a needle prick in a dark cloth yet waited with frightful meaning. Stop, the boy said. Stop for a minute, please. Unquestioning, the gunslinger let the hand car coast to a stop. The sound of the river was a steady, booming roar coming from beneath and ahead. The artificial glow from the wet rock was suddenly hateful. For the first time, he felt a claustrophobic hand touch him, and the urge to get out, to get free of this living burial, was strong and nearly indefinable, undeniable. We'll go on, the boy said. Is that what he wants, for us to drive the hand car out over that and fall down? The gunslinger knew it was not, but said, I don't know what he wants. They got down and approached the lip of the drop carefully. The stone beneath their feet continued to rise until, with a sudden angling drop, the floor fell away from the tracks, and the tracks continued alone across blackness. The gunslinger dropped to his knees and peered down. He could make he could dimly make out a complex, nearly incredible webwork of steel girders and struts disappearing down towards the vore of the river. All in support of the grateful arch of the tracks across the void.
In his mind's eye, he could imagine the work of time and water on the steel in deadly tandem. How much support was left? Little? Hardly any? None? He suddenly saw the face of the mummy again, and the way the flesh, seemingly solid, had crumbled to powder at the effortless touch of his finger. We'll walk now, the gunslinger said. He half expected the boy to balk again, but he preceded the gunslinger out onto the rails, crossing on the wielded steel slats calmly with sure feet. The gunslinger full followed him out over the chasm, ready to catch him if Jake should put a foot wrong. The gunslinger felt a fine slick of sweat cover his skin. The trestle was rotten, very rotten. It thrummed beneath his feet with the heady motion of a river far beneath, swaying a little on unseen guy wires. We're acrobats, he thought. Look, mother, no net. I'm flying. He knelt once and examined cross ties that were walking on. They were walking on. They were caked and pitted with rust. He could feel the reason on his face. Fresh air, the friend of corruption. They must be very close to the surface now, and a strong blow of the fist made the metal quiver sickly. Once he heard a warning groan beneath his feet and felt the steel settle preparatory to giving way, but he had already moved on. The boy, of course, was over a hundred pounds lighter and safe enough, unless the going became progressively worse. Behind them, the hand car melted into the general gloom. The stone pier on the left extended out perhaps twenty yards. It jutted further than the one on the right, but this one was also left behind. And then they were all alone over the gulf. At first it seemed that the tiny brick of daylight remained mockingly constant, perhaps even drawing away from them at the exact pace they approached it. That would be a fine piece of magic indeed. But gradually the gunslinger realized that it was widening, becoming more defined. They were still below it, but the tracks were rising to meet it. The boy gave a surprised grunt and suddenly lurched to the side, arms pinwheeling in slow, wide revolutions. It seemed that he tottered on the brink for a very long time indeed before stepping forward again. It almost went on me he said softly, without emotion. There's a hole. Step over it if you don't want to take a quick trip to the bottom. Simon says, take one giant step. That was a game the gunslinger knew, as Mother says, remembered well from childhood games with Cutbirth, Jamie, and Elaine. But he said nothing, only stepped over. Go back, Jake said, unsmiling. You forgot to say may I? Cry your pardon, but I think not. The cross tie the boy had stepped on had given away almost entirely and flopped downward lazily, swinging on a rotten rivet. Upward, still upward, it was a nightmare walk and seemed to go on much longer than it did. The air itself seemed to thicken and become like taffy, and the gunslinger felt as if he might be swimming rather than walking. Again and again his mind tried to turn itself thoughtful, lunatic consideration of the awful space between the trestle and the river below. 
His brain viewed it in spectacular detail and how it would be. The scream of twisting, giving metal, the lurch as his body slid off to the side, the grabbing for non-existent handholds with the fingers, the swift rattle of boot heels on treacherous, rotted steel, and then down, turning over and over the warm spray in his crotch as his bladder let go, the rush of wind against his face, rippling his hair up in a caricature of fright, pulling his eyelids back, the dark water rising, rushing to meet him, faster, outstripping even his own scream. Metal screamed beneath him, and he stopped, and he stepped past it, unhurriedly, shifting his weight. At that crucial moment, not thinking of the drop, or how far they come, or of how far might be left, not thinking that the boy was expendable, and that the cell of his honor was now, at last, nearly negotiated. What a relief it would be when the deal was done. Three ties out, the boy said coolly, I'm going to jump. Here, right here, Geronimo. The gunslinger saw him silhouetted for a moment against the daylight, an awkward, hunched, spread-eagled arms out as if, should all else fail, there was the possibility of flight. He landed, and the whole edifice swayed drunkenly under his weight. Metal beneath them protested, and something far below fell, first with a crash, then with a splash. "'Are you over?' the gunslinger asked. Yar, the barse, the boy said. But it's very rotten, like the ideas of certain people, maybe. I don't think it'll hold you any further than where you are now. Me, but not you. Go back. Go back now and leave me alone. His voice was cold, but there was hysteria underneath, beating at his heart that had beat when he jumped back onto the handcar and Roland had caught him. The gunslinger stepped over the brake. One large step did it. One giant step, Mother, may I? Yes, you may. The boy was shuddering helplessly. Go back. I don't want you to kill me. For the love of the man Jesus, walk, the gunslinger said roughly. It's going to fall down for sure if we stand here palavering. The boy walked drunkenly now, his hands held out shudderingly before him, fingers splayed. They went up. Yes, it was much more rotten now. There were frequent breaks of one, two, or even three ties, and the gunslinger expected again and again that they would find the long, empty space between rails that would either force them back or make them walk on the rails themselves, balanced giddily over the chasm. It kept his eyes fixed on the daylight. The glow had taken on a color, blue, and, as it came closer, became softer, paling the radiance of the fossils. Fifty yards or a hundred still to cover, he could not say. They walked, and now he looked down at his feet, crossing from tie to tie. When he looked up again, the glow ahead had grown to a hole, and it was not just light, but a way out. They were almost there, thirty yards now, no more than that, Ninety short feet. It could be done. Perhaps they would have the man in black yet. Perhaps in the bright sunlight the evil flowers in his mind would shrivel and anything would be possible. 
the sunlight was blocked out. He looked up, startled, peering like a mole from its hole, and saw a silhouette filling the light, eating it up, allowing only chinks of mocking blue around the outlined shoulders and fork of her crotch. Hello, boys! The man in black's voice echoed to them, amplified in this natural throat of stone, the sarcasm of his good cheer taking on mighty overtones. Blindly, the gunslinger sought the jawbone, but it was gone, lost somewhere, used up. He laughed above them, and the sound crashed around them, reverberating like surf in a filling cave. The boy screamed and tottered, windmill again, arms gyrating through the scant air, middle ripped and slothed beneath them, the rails canted through a slow and dreamy twisting. The boy plunged and one hand flew up like a gull in the darkness, up, up, and then he hung over the pit. He dangled there, his dark eyes staring up at the gunslinger in final blind lost knowledge. Help me! Booming, racketing, no more games, come now, gunslinger, or catch me never. All the chips on the table every card up but one the boy dangled a living tarot card the hanged man the phoenician sailor innocent lost barely above the wave of a stygian sea wait then wait a while do i go his voice is so loud he makes it hard to think help me roland help me help me roland Tressel had begun to twist further, screaming, pulling loose from itself, giving. Then I shall leave you. No, you shall not. The gunslinger's leg carried him. In a sudden leap, breaking the paralysis that held him, he took a giant's step above the dangling boy and landed in a skidding, plunging rush towards the light that offered the tower frozen on his mind's eye in a black still life into sudden silence. The silhouette was gone. Even the beat of his heart was gone. As the trestle settled further, beginning its final slow dance to the depths, tearing loose his hand, finding the rocky lighted lip of damnation. And behind him, in the dreadful silence, the boy spoke from too far beneath him. Go then, there are other worlds than these. Then the thristle tore away the whole weight of it and as if the guns and, and as the gunslinger pulled himself up and threw to the light and the breeze and the reality of a new caw, he twisted his head back for a moment in his agony, striving to be Janus, but there was nothing, only pummeling silence, for the boy made no cry as he fell. Then Roland was up pulling himself onto the rocky escarpment that looked towards the grassy plain, towards where the man in black stood, spread-legged with arms crossed. The gunslinger stood drunkenly, pallid as a ghost, eyes huge and swimming beneath his forehead, short smeared with the white dust of his final lunging crawl, 
it came to him, there would be further degradations of the spirit ahead that might make this one look and seem infinitesimal. And yet he would still flee it. Down corridors and through cities, from bed to bed, he would flee the boy's face and try to bury it in cunts and killing, only to enter one final room and find it looking back at him over a candle flame. He had become the boy. The boy had become him. He was become a werewolf of his own making. In deep dreams he would become the boy and speak the boy's strange city tongue. This is death, is it? Is it? He walked slowly, drunkenly, down the rocky hill towards where the man in black waited. Here the tracks had been worn away under the sun of reason, and it was as if they had never been. The man in black pushed his hood away with the backs of his hands, laughing. So he cried, not an end, but the end of a beginning, eh? Ay, you progress, gunslinger, you progress. Oh, how I admire you. The gunslinger drew with a blinding speed and fired twelve times. The gun flashes dimmed the sun itself, and the pounding of the explosion slammed back from the rock-faced escarpments behind them. Now, now, the man in black said, smiling. Oh, now, 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 we make great magic together, you and I. You kill me no more than you kill yourself. He withdrew, walking backwards, facing the gunslinger, grinning and beckoning. Come, 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 Mother Maya, yes you may. The gunslinger followed him in broken boots to the place of counseling. All right, my dear friends, that was the end of chapter four. So chapter four was huge, right? So there's so much that happens in chapter four. In chapter four, we enter the mountains following the man in black and you have another story, or you have stories within stories, you know, as Roland starts reminiscing almost immediately about the sewing knight cotillion, the Kamala, and how Martin and his mother had danced, you know, at this event, and how he and his friends had climbed up into the rafters to watch. And later we heard more about Roland growing up in his test of manhood. We talked a little bit about that um, previously. And now, you know, we have finally come to where Roland and the boy at one point stopped at almost a terminal or like a subway, a hub where maybe different tracks had met inside the mountain carrying cars or in one, in one instance, I thought the detail of a converted stagecoach, you know, made to run on, on the rails. I thought that was beautiful. And he considers leaving Jake there, you know, and again tricks Jake into continuing on with him, but even then thought it would be better to leave him here with uncertainty than what he knew would most likely happen. And then, of course, passing over this steel bridge that, you know, it's extending out into the blackness like this chasm between 
in the mountain, like this drop where, you know, the river had been running, the river in the mountain, and now it's crossing underneath, you know, this, this space that the bridge must cross over, and it's this latticework of steel and iron, and is as ancient as anything inside the mountain, and I thought that it was a nice detail that Roland remembers the mummies they found at the terminal and how they just turned to dust, barely touching them. So he knew that this steel bridge was as delicate as lace that they're trying to crawl across, like spiders on a spider web, you know, in a very uncertain support. And the um, Simon says, Mother, may I? And, of course, Jake being startled, Jake and the gunslinger both being startled by the man in black, you know, basically poking his way into the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, blocking the light. And it startles Jake, and he loses his balance, and he manages to reach with one hand, and he's dangling. And, you know, Roland is kind of caught do I try to save him? You know, what do I do? And he's paralyzed. And again, the gun, you know, the gunslinger is goaded by the man in black. You know, he says, well, you know, then catch me never, you know. And without thinking, Roland leaps over Jake and leaves him there. And the movement of Roland, I guess, jumping over Jake and landing as he does over Jake or on the other side of Jake causes the entire thing to collapse. And so, you know, the whole thing falls. And as the boy is falling, he says, go then, there are other worlds than these. So I thought that was a really sad ending for Jake at this point, you know, and after everything he's gone through and you know, Roland coming out of this darkness, you know, wearing uh, white dust, you know, and, and pallid, you know, he's lost his color, following the man in black, and the man in black to him, all this is a joke, you know, he's laughing, and so it was a very um, hard end to our Jake character. Um, I've been describing different things in the book and we have two illustrations in this chapter one is one of the illustrations and I couldn't explain it because we hadn't gotten to that point as they're talking about Roland's or as the chapter feeds into Roland's test of manhood which is before the attack by the slow mutants this insert is put right in the beginning of that story so you see Roland and you've got his face and a little bit of him and you know it's all darkness this is like kind of a light colored drawing over black kind of like a velvet painting might have looked if you've ever seen one of those and you see Jake and he's holding on to Roland Roland's got his arm and you see this humanoid green kind of creature grabbing his leg and, you know, trying to pull on him. And Jake is like the human wishbone. So that is one picture where there are these monstrous creatures waiting to grab them off the, off the hand car. The next illustration 
is a pastel picture of the Dark Tower and this is nothing we have actually read about so far. All of our illustrations are kind of happening after what we've read. This almost seems to be before what we've read. So I'll come back to this illustration at the end of chapter five. So, so much happened. It seems like the man in black always knows how to goad and how to, you know, push Roland into doing things maybe he shouldn't do or to act without thinking or to act on reaction. But we've also heard that Roland acting out of instinct that that's always worked best for him. But he does allow himself, I think, my own opinion, to be pushed by the man in black, to be goaded by him. Um, I don't know that this is true, but it seems that way. And Jake, it almost seems like Roland, you know, was dealing with this moral dilemma with himself of utilizing the boy in the same way that he utilized the hawk during his test of manhood. Like, when do you use a friend? When's a friend a friend? And when is it ever right to use a friend? And the boy and, of course, the gutslinger have made a friendship. So... That's an interesting point. You know, he let the boy fall rather than help him. So does that damn him or does it not? And then I thought this last piece, um, when Roland passes his manhood test or he gets ready to, he says that David was an old hawk and he hoped that he was a young one. In this instance, Roland is an older gunslinger. Maybe Jake is the young hawk, but Jake is still the sacrifice, almost in the way the hawk was. He jumps over Jake. He doesn't try to save him. He's so eager to get to the man in black. That's all he can see. So is this horrific or is it admirable? And that's something to consider, you know, about the gunslinger. Is he like the man in black in a way? Or, you know, is that drive that eclipses his ability to help someone he has grown to love? You know, what, what does that say? So these are very thought-provoking questions, and, and maybe, you know, a reader wouldn't want to think too deeply about it. For me, this is right up my alley in, in complex thought and in story writing. I, I think it is brilliant. There was so much that happened here, almost like our first chapter where the story was Roland crossing the desert, then meeting Brown, then you hear about Tall. This was, you know, of course, Roland and Jake encountering the Oracle, you know, at the Oracle in the mountains, and then in the mountains, and this struggle between their personalities, Jake and the gunslinger, and the challenges and obstacles they have to overcome, and the stories of Roland's own coming of age and Jake's story of the ending of his life. Where Roland steps into his life, Jake is exiting his. So I liked the duality happening here. And I liked how it's almost a comparison of likes and opposites. So 
very well done. This is one of the reasons I love this book. Also, at the end of this chapter, which is really kind of pretty, is a pen and ink drawing. And you see the hawk. And, you know, you could assume that it is David the hawk. But the hawk is nose down, almost like it's diving down to the bottom of the page. Or is it Jake falling? So, you know, is it symbolic? Or... Or, or what and again I think this would also be a really nice tattoo <laughs> the next chapter is our final chapter called the gunslinger and the man in black so what I'm going to do is post the final chapter and a final read and next episode which will be posted simultaneously with this one so if you're listening this should follow immediately back to back and I want to do it this way because while this last chapter isn't very long, there's a lot here and a lot to consider. So um, let's dive in. Chapter or episode, our next episode will only be two segments with a small break in between. And I want to say thank you for journeying with me on this adventure with Jake and Roland and certainly your patience as I stumble over some pieces and um, this has been wonderful sharing this story with you and I hope we don't get in trouble. <laughs> I say this in every episode if we are asked to remove this reading we will do so. I do not have um, Stephen King's permission to read this marvelous work but you know, I, I love the story, and more than anything, if you take anything away from this, it is please go buy a copy for yourself, and, you know, this is a book you would want for your library. If you've liked the story, this is one you'd want for your bookshelf or to put in your stack of books. This is one that you can pick up and read, you know, in a weekend and not think about it for a few months, and then all of a sudden bam, something's going to come to mind and you're going to remember, you know, a line from this or a scene from this. This isn't a story that goes away. So I have found myself over the years coming back to the story over and over again, rereading it and enjoying it almost like I did the first time. So it's one of those kinds of reads. All right. Well, thank you. If you like this, give me a share and thank you for listening to SEPA Stories. And we will see you in our next reading. So thank you again. Have a great evening or day, whatever you're doing. And we will see you next time.